welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is on the rhetoric of X, where X equals a subject, profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of addiction. Can you start us up with some untranslated Greek or Latin, Tim? Uh, perhaps something from the good book. Noli regibus, O Lamuel. Noli regibus dare vinum, quia nullum secretum est ubi regnat ebreitas, et ne forte bibant, et obliviscantur judiciorum, et mutant causam filiorum pauperis. Wise words indeed. So, Tim, can you tell us uh, about the rhetoric of addiction? Sure thing, Dave. All sorts of people say all sorts of things about addiction. Doctors, politicians, priests, rabbis, ministers, and imams, practicing and recovering addicts. Everybody's got something to say about addiction. Uh, It sounds like it might be too much to cover in one episode. How might we pare this down, Tim? I think it will be helpful to differentiate, as the experts do, between substance addiction and behavioral addiction, but also given our rhetorical focus, to differentiate between literal and figurative addiction. I like it, Tim. Can you give us some uh, examples of those four categories? Sure. People addicted to opioids, meth, alcohol, and nicotine have substance addictions. People addicted to sex, gambling, pornography, and video games have behavioral addictions. And so what about these uh, literal and figurative addictions, Tim? Okay, the first part is easy. People addicted to substances have literal addictions, but behavioral addictions are trickier. How so, Tim? Surely you've heard people say, I'm addicted to TikTok, or I'm addicted to Real Housewives, or I'm addicted to double-stuffed Oreos. Uh, First of all, uh, Tim, uh, don't call me Shirley. And secondly, I don't see how those are all different from the substance addictions. Isn't that tasty double-stuffing a substance? Indeed it is, and a key ingredient is sugar, which some health professionals argue is not only addictive, but toxic toxic as well. But before we get too far into the weeds, let's talk about the difference between ingesting a chemical that is known to be physically addictive and engaging in a behavior like gambling that doesn't involve ingesting an addictive substance. Okay, so what you're saying, if I'm following you, is that gambling is not literally addictive because gamblers don't ingest a chemical at least when they're playing with the cards. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. How so? Because the compulsive gambler or the sex addict is actually producing chemicals in his or her body Mm. that have effects similar to the drugs that substance addicts ingest. So the handy rhetorical distinction between literal and figurative breaks down when we talk about some behaviors that release dopamine, the feel-good chemical, in a person's brain. So, okay, Tim, so I hate it when when neat rhetorical distinctions uh, break down, but I get your point. So what can we do to clean up this mess? We can start by using adjectives of degree to differentiate between substances that are highly addictive, for example, heroin, nicotine, and meth, and those that might be significantly less addictive, for example, caffeine, cannabis, sugar, and believe it or not, cheese. Ah, uh, the four horsemen of my diet. So I believe what you're saying here. My, my doctor actually thinks I should start going to CEA, Cheese Eaters Anonymous. 
Ah, uh, yes, I can see you as a friend of Dave T. But to ma- back to maintaining distinctions among real and less legitimate addictions, we can also rely on professional organizations such as the American Psychiatric Association, who produce the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the latest version of which is the DSM-5. They do include gambling disorder, but they draw the line at sex addiction because, according to one source, quote, despite the popularity of the term, the sexual addiction diagnosis proposal has been refused by DSM-5 mainly because of a lack of peer-reviewed evidence to determine the diagnosis criteria, unquote. Similarly, internet gaming disorder is identified in Section 3 as a condition warranting more clinical research and experience before it might be considered for inclusion in the main book as a formal disorder. So where does that leave us, Tim? It leaves us being cautious about using the term addiction for substances that are not so highly addictive that they produce physical dependence with potentially life-threatening withdrawal. Mm. Caffeine withdrawal is real and unpleasant, but not likely to kill you. So that makes sense with the rhetorical distinction there. So this provides a bit of guidance on substance addictions, but what about the uh, behavioral addictions that you mentioned earlier? The pros say yes for gambling addiction for the combined reasons of DSM-5 support by the shrinks and the extreme economic cost of being addicted to gambling. But the authorities say no for binge-watching The Real Housewives or marathon video gaming, despite the potential sleep deprivation and Cheetos overload associated with the latter. So is this all there is to the rhetoric of addiction, being careful about the terms we use to different, uh, uh, for different categories of addiction, Tim? Not hardly, Dave. Another important aspect of the rhetoric of addiction is how people talk about the addicts and what we can and should do about the problem. Do tell. There has been some change in terms of categorizing addiction as a moral failing or as a disease. I mentioned at the outset that the people talking about addiction include doctors, politicians, priests, rabbis, ministers, and imams. The doctors treat addiction as a medical problem, whereas the religious leaders use a wide range of rhetorical appeals to encourage sobriety and discourage the faithful from polluting the temple of their bodies and or engaging in sinful behaviors. Meanwhile, the politicians attempt to create laws that will control access to addictive substances or behaviors. Ah, yes. I remember hearing the tale of a thing called prohibition back in the early days that effectively ruined everyone's good time, creating numerous bootleg billionaires and established several highly successful organized crime families that persist to this day. What's not to like, Tim? Exactly. So the dominant view of any sort of addiction used to be that of a moral failing. Addicts should suffer punishment for their misdeeds, as if being addicted to something were not punishment enough, and afforded opportunities to mend their ways or pay the consequences. Eventually, however, the moral failing mindset gave way to a medicalized vision that spoke of addiction as a disease, and physicians proceeded to treat it with a variety of therapies, including electroshock, psychedelic drugs, as well as substitutes for opiates such as methadone that would kill the craving while alleviating potentially deadly withdrawal symptoms without affording the same kind or magnitude of euphoria as the original drug. Do they have anything like opioids for the uh, double-stuffed Oreos, Tim? Uh, I think uh, mint Milanos might basically be a sort of (laughs) in-between substance. So with all this debilitation, without uh, any of the fun, I guess, is what we're looking at. Eventually, the American Medical Association recognized alcoholism as a disease as early as 1956. 
Even programs like Alcoholics Anonymous do not characterize alcoholism primarily as a moral failing, despite an approach that encourages the alcoholic to turn their lives over to a higher power and insisting that recovery depends on alcoholics taking responsibility for living with their condition. So just how did this change of mindset come about, Tim? How do you get that average person to quit thinking that addiction is a moral problem and start thinking about it as a health problem? Well, Dave, you won't be surprised to learn that rhetoric was involved. For starters, people started to catch on to the fact that centuries of effort to dissuade addicts primarily through guilt and shame just didn't work. Ah, uh, the old insanity definition. Indeed. And since you mentioned the definition, I'll mention the ones in an article titled Neurobiological Advances in BDMA. Did you just say BDSM? Because I think that's a different thing. No, Dave, but now that you mention it, that might be a great topic for a future podcast. BDMA stands for Brain Disease Model of Addiction. So I get it. If the addict has a disease, then you can't bust them for a moral failing, or at least reasonable folks who believe that the diseases have a natural causes rather than come from being smelt smited by a god. Exactly. But again, there is some wiggle room here. Take, for example, diabetes. No reasonable person is going to hold a person with type 1 diabetes responsible for the fact that their pancreas doesn't produce insulin. But there's room for blame when it comes to type 2 diabetes because of the impacts of diet and exercise. Mm. So those are those damn, those Puritans kind of morality, right? So speaking of that, there's another possible topic for a podcast, or did we uh, cover that in season two, The Rhetoric of Religion, available at anywhere where you can find quality and not-so-quality podcasts. Good point. But allow me to quote from the article I just mentioned. Quote, in the past two decades, research has increasingly supported the view that addiction is a disease of the brain. Although the brain disease model of addiction has yielded effective preventive measures, treatment interventions, and public health policies to address substance use disorders, the underlying concept of substance abuse as a brain disease continues to be questioned, perhaps because the aberrant, impulsive, and compulsive behaviors that are characteristic of addiction have not been clearly tied to neurobiology. So, if I'm following you, one way to flip the script on addiction is to link the undesirable behaviors to biological facts occurring in the addict's brain. Exactly. The Puritans will still label him or her a degenerative junkie, but doctors can point to evidence that it wasn't the devil who made him do it, but some chemicals in his or her brain. Plus, research into the desensitization of reward circuits and the weakening of brain regions involved in executive functions adds to the understanding of how, quote, social environments, developmental stages, and genetics are intimately linked to and influence vulnerability and recovery, to quote the authors of that article. And is this redefinition or reconceptualizing having any real-world effect, Tim? Indeed, it has. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008 requires medical insurance plans to provide the same coverage for substance use disorders and other mental illnesses that is provided for other illnesses. Plus, some police departments have realized that, quote, reducing incarceration will improve public safety because people who need treatment for drug and alcohol problems or mental health issues will be more likely to improve and reintegrate in society if they receive consistent quick care, unquote, according to a 2015 article in the New York Times. Nicely done, Tim. So returning to the popular challenge portion of this podcast, I now have a challenge for you, Tim. Have you now or have you ever been addicted to the TV show Kung Fu from the 1970s? 
No, as it turned out, at that time, I was so addicted to alcohol that I wasn't watching a lot of TV. But I do remember seeing a few effort episodes, and I, I understand the appeal, but uh, mm -hmm. I was never hooked on, on a kung fu TV show. Got it. So let's, uh, let's get to the take-home point here. So if I'm understanding, to recap, the rhetoric of addiction is complicated by two fundamentally different kinds of addiction, substance and behavioral. And our talk of addiction is muddied by literal and figurative claims of addiction. And all this is occurring while the societal notions of addiction is undergoing a change from a moral problem to a medical problem. That about sums it up, Grasshopper. Okay, Tim, so who's sponsoring this episode? Today's episode is sponsored by Bee Sting Lip Balm. While models the world over resort to injections to plump up their lips, two problems with fillers are price and durability. The price is high because only a licensed medical professional can administer cosmetic injectables. And the fillers don't last forever, with the result that the patients display cartoonish bee-stung lips one day, only to have them shrivel back to original size in less than a year. And that's where Bee Sting Lip Balm comes in. Putting the very same toxin found in stinging bees into a lip balm, we give you the ability to blow up your lips as little or as much as you want in the wink of an eye. Unlike existing lip plumpers that simply moisturize your lips, our Bee Sting Bee Balm actually applies the same toxin found in bee, bottom, bee venom, not to be used by anyone allergic to bee stings. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communica communication, and this has been Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us or consult your local library.